0: Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Um, So today I'm going to read to you... uh some of, most of, Revelation 15 and 16. And as we're reading, you might wish that I hadn't read it. <laughs> uh, this is why people are afraid of Revelation. And on its face, uh, it truly sounds like one of the most terrifying and awful passages in the book, maybe in all of Scripture. Well, Sabrina mentioned uh, last week that her son Benjamin thought that Revelation 14 and Passages like that should be a movie directed by Peter Jackson, the great director of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, a friend of mine, uh, one of our elders named Sam Lanier, he said to me a couple weeks ago after we read chapter 13, and it made me think of it again with chapter 16, that's a movie directed by Quentin Tarantino. And he's not wrong, and if you don't know who that is, then you're a better person than I am, and don't worry about it. (laughs) But I'm telling you, Without chapters 15 and 16, as difficult as it is, there would be no hope. Because without these two chapters, there would be no answer to evil. There would be no response to all the terrible and awful things that we face here on earth because of evil. If you remember what we've seen over the past few weeks, the chaos here, we know it's because evil knows that it is lost. That Jesus has won, that it can't defeat him, so now it's lashing out. It's a temper tantrum. And without God's judgment, that tantrum would never end. So today, we're gonna talk about the judgment and the wrath of God. But by the time we're through, I think that you'll see that God's judgment and God's wrath, it's not what we think of when we first hear those words. His judgment and his wrath, it's not like ours. I know what it's like when I judge and when I feel wrath and it's typically not good. It's not the same thing because God is good and these chapters are describing to us the destruction of evil and that is good news. So as we read this, I really want to remind you of the framework that we've been setting up as we've read this weird and really beautiful book. Remember all the little phrases. It doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. We're not going to be able to talk about everything it says. There's just too much, but we will talk about what it means. Remember that what we're reading, these are descriptions of symbols. This isn't the description or the play-by-play of actual events. These symbols are dramatic because they're asking us to stop and listen and take God's word and God's plan for redemption very seriously. So are y'all ready? All right, let's read Revelation 15 and 16. For 15, I'm just going to read the first four verses. Uh, It's a very short chapter, uh, but this sums it up well. It says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, come on, Chad, that's not so bad, right? Gird your loins. Here we go. <laughs> Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on all the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel Poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Remember, it doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. So let's talk about that. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, be present with us as we wrestle with this difficult text, as we wrestle with judgment and wrath, as we find our place in the midst of these two chapters, and as we figure out what you would have us do as we respond to your living word as it takes root deep within us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I want you to imagine, picture, a village. And this village is out in the middle of nowhere and it actually doesn't matter where it is or when it is, it's just an isolated village in the middle of nowhere. Nobody really goes there, especially government officials. This village isn't big enough to have a judge of its own, so a judge only comes to town every once in a while. Now, in between the judge's visits in this village, imagine a builder who's been cheated by his customer. The customer refuses to pay what he agreed for the builder's services. Now, the builder is out time and labor. He's out the cost of his materials. He's been cheated. Imagine a widow. What little she has left has been stolen. And since she's a widow and has nobody to plead for her, there's nothing she can do about it. Imagine a family that's been evicted from their home simply because the landlord thinks he can get more money from someone else. And on and on the situations go. Nobody can do anything about these things. Pent up frustration in the village begins to boil over. The whole community eventually finds itself in chaos because there is no justice until the judge comes. And when the judge comes, he'll hear each case properly, fairly, listen to the truth. He'll pay close attention to the people who have no one to speak on their behalf. And then he'll decide. He'll make a decision. And it'll be final. Justice will come. Chaos will come to an end. And order will be restored. Those who cheated others they have to make that right. The thief will face consequences and be required to pay back what the widow lost. The landlord will have to honor the contract and give the people back in their home. And when all of that happens, the community will let out a collective sigh of relief because judgment has been made, justice has come. Things that were wrong have now been made right. You see, God's judgment, as terrifying as it might sound to us at first, It is good news because it means that there will be justice. Things will be made right. God's wrath is at evil, and his judgment of it leads to healing and to hope. It leads to restoration. In the end, evil will face consequences and it will crumble under the weight of them. And that is good news. I mean what kind of judge would ignore the plea of the cheated would ignore the widow who's lost everything would ignore the family that's unjustly kicked to the streets what kind of judge will look at the injustices in this world and sit back and do nothing about it only a corrupt and wicked judge would allow these things to go on forever. And the good news is that the God that we know in the person of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is not wicked. He is not corrupt. He is good. And it would go against his own nature to sit back and be unmoved by injustice and suffering. He will do something about it. That started a long time ago when he took our suffering on himself. So if we're reading through this story, it should not surprise us that as we come to the end, God is going to do something about evil. And according to Revelation, it's gonna be dramatic. But one of the tensions that we face from our perspective, it does seem like he's taking his sweet time. We might be tempted to think if it was me, I wouldn't let suffering and injustice go on for this long. I would shut it down right away. And from our perspective, I get that. I understand that. It's a constant theme in scripture. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God's people cry out to him, how long? How long will you allow the suffering and evil to go on? I get it from our perspective. But you know as well as I do, There are things that God knows that we just don't. God's perspective is different than ours. And what God knows is the terrifying truth about his judgment of evil. He knows that his judgment is final. You see, when those bowls are poured out, they're called bowls in chapter 16 again because they're symbolic of something. A bowl, when it's poured out, the entire contents are immediately poured out. It's not slow, it's not gradual, it is all at once and it is total. When these bowls are poured out in chapter 16, there's no going back. It's final. For those who, maybe it started with denial of God, but then it turned into hatred and rage toward God. Because they've been deceived by the beast. In the end, they will be judged. Right alongside that terrible dragon and his beast, those symbols for everything that's evil and opposed to God, they will suffer the same fate as the one they worship. Because their hatred and their rage and their evil, it cannot be allowed into eternity, because if it was, eternity would be no different than right now. If heaven is heaven, then evil must be completely defeated. If there is any hope and promise of eternity in the presence of a holy God, it must be defeated, and that defeat must be final. And that is why God is waiting. God is waiting because he's merciful. Even to those who would deny and rage against him, there is the opportunity for repentance for redemption, and for a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. Remember Jesus in the parable of the 99 sheep chasing after the one with everything he's got. The good news is so good that it's even good news for those who have set themselves as enemies of God. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us this. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is what God desires, that all of his image bearers would be with him. He has given us the ability to choose because love chooses, but he is fighting for every soul right up to the very end. There is always the opportunity for repentance and salvation until there isn't. There is always the opportunity for repentance and salvation until there isn't. And that is the terrifying and good news of Revelation 15 and 16. Now, this passage has often been, I believe, misused, and it's been used to preach hellfire and brimstone. Now, there is hellfire and brimstone, but it's been used to scare the wrong people. It's been used to literally scare the hell out of people who might be doubters, people who are questioning the person of Christ and the good news that we have found in Scripture. It's been used to describe what life will be like for those who never get a chance to hear the gospel. It's been used to scare the 15-year-old kid because he or she have made some mistakes and they need to change their ways. You know, that is not what this passage is about. To understand it, think of chapter 15 and 16 as two specific locations, as two geographic locations. One location is located above the bowls of judgment and the other location is below them. You can think of them very literally as heaven and hell. And in that context, ask yourself then, according to the text we read, who is where? It's a weirdly worded question, but hang with me. Chapter 15 tells us that those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they are in the presence of God Almighty, And his final judgment is poured out beneath them, not over them. The only way to that victory is through Jesus. So those who are in Christ, his nature and his character being written over their own, they are the recipients of salvation through Jesus. And they are located in chapter 15, above the bowls. They are with God. Chapter 16 then describes who's beneath the bowls. God's bowls are poured out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. They are the ones who are subject to God's terrible judgment. If you remember our conversation a couple weeks ago about the mark of the beast in chapter 13, this is not a mark that you take unwittingly. This is not something snuck into you through a vaccine. It's not a microchip that anybody is trying to implant in you without you knowing it. This is a willful decision to worship something other than the one true God. The mark of the beast describes someone who's an image bearer of God, but has given their life and their worship to evil, to everything that opposes God. It describes the person who has chosen what is evil over what is good, has chosen hate and rage over love and peace. This is someone who has been marked. They've allowed themselves to be marked, to be known by the character and the nature of evil. Did you notice in the reading as the plagues, as the judgments were poured out, how did the people respond? They cursed God, but they refused to repent and give him glory. At this point, they know who God is. Chapter 16 describes them as plagues for a reason. It should make you think of a very old story. When you lay the plagues in chapter 16 side by side with the plagues in Egypt, as God was freeing his people from slavery, they line up. There's even a section about frogs that I didn't read. You can go back and read it later. But if you remember in that story, it's complicated, but Pharaoh sets himself against God. He doesn't have any doubt about who God is. He knows over time his magicians are fake and God is the one true God. God is the one with all the power, yet he still stands in opposition. In the end, he refuses to bow down and worship. At this point in the story, these people know who God is. They know who Jesus is and what he's done, but just like the dragon, they say no and they reject him, and they reject his salvation. This is not about people who are doubters. This is not about people who are ignorant of the gospel. This is not aimed at a 15-year-old kid who's making some mistakes. These are people who have made their choice, and they have chosen to follow and worship the embodiment of evil. They are given every opportunity to repent and return to God. We've seen this judgment play out twice before. In chapter six, it came as the seals and that was partial judgment and people recognized and responded and repented. In chapters eight through 11, we saw it again from a different perspective, this time trumpets, partial judgment and people recognized, responded and repented. But now this judgment is final. There is always the opportunity for repentance until there isn't. You see, Scripture tells us that we become like what we worship. So if you worship the Father known in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be transformed and restored in his image. Your fate, the same as that of Jesus himself, resurrected and glorified, present with God forever, above the bowls of his judgment. If you worship evil, evil will transform you. And your fate will be the same. You will stand together under the bowls of God's judgment and wrath. So the question that every person on the planet needs to ask themselves, this is the first question that came up when we read this as a group on Wednesday night. Where are we? Where am I? Am I with the people in chapter 15 marked by Jesus Above the bowls, singing this song that no one else knows but those who find their hope and salvation and their life in Jesus. Or am I with those in chapter 16, those who know exactly who God is, but choose to deny and defy and reject his love and mercy, those who have willfully taken on the nature of the beast? I'm gonna be really bold and just tell y'all, I think I'm in chapter 15. <laughs> it doesn't make me perfect, I'm a mess but I've made my choice. I've made my choice. That doesn't mean that these passages are not for us though, because they still provide a warning, an important warning. Remember, this is a pastor writing a letter from a vision given to him by Jesus to his people, to his church. And his church is living under oppression in Rome. And they're asking their pastor, would it really be that big a deal if we publicly deny Jesus? If it saves our lives, would it be that big a deal? Would it be that big a deal if we just go through the motions like everybody else and worship Rome and worship Caesar? Would it really be that big a deal? Because, pastor, what could be worse than losing your life because you were disobedient to Rome? John's answer is there is something much, much worse. For those who are in Christ, chapter 15 is the hopeful reminder that evil will not last forever and that those who are in Christ have a home where he is. God's judgment and wrath has been poured out, but for those who are in Christ, it has been poured out on Jesus in our place. God will not tolerate evil. But Jesus took that judgment upon himself so that we could be with him where he is. That is good news. Can I get an amen? Chapter 16 is a little more graphic. (laughs) But the language is graphic for a reason. For those who have chosen what is evil over what is good, it is meant to terrify you. When you have set yourself as an enemy to all that is good, when you have sided with hatred over love, chaos and destruction over peace, you are going to get what you want. And I don't mean that sarcastically, I mean it very literally. That's what chapter 16 is describing. Chapter 16 tells us that God's anger is righteous and just because he's not lashing out and punishing people, he's not the one throwing a fit. He's not lashing out in unbridled anger. He's not like me. He's not reacting like I would react. He's giving the people what they want. If you want Jesus, he gives you Jesus. But if you choose suffering and chaos and destruction, he allows you to make that choice too. But he doesn't do it without a warning because he knows that they don't understand what they're asking for. So we get this incredibly dramatic and graphic language that's really hard to read. But we have to remember it's meant for those who have chosen evil to wake them up, to tell them it's worse than anything you can imagine. And you'll be absent from me forever. This is Jesus' final pass at literally scaring them out of hell. For those who have chosen what is evil over what is good, it is meant to terrify them. But for everyone else, Revelation 15 and 16 should not make us feel afraid. It should not terrify us because that judgment is not for us. Jesus has taken it upon himself. So that means that the appropriate thing for followers of Jesus to feel after we read chapter 15, we should feel comfort and gratitude an excitement about an eternity with Jesus but the appropriate thing for followers of Jesus to feel after we read chapter 16 is profound sadness sadness that anyone maybe even somebody that we know anyone would choose hatred over love sadness that anyone made in God's image would choose their own destruction and miss out on the opportunity to enjoy life forever with a good and loving God. That should make us profoundly sad. But that sadness should then turn into profound positive action. Because if you're sad for them, if you're afraid for them, then fight for them. Scripture is telling us have some compassion. On those who have been deceived and manipulated by evil, remember that you too were once deceived and manipulated by evil. Have some compassion. Fight for them. Show them as best as you can evidence of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness, how it's transformed your life, even if that person has their rage focused on you. You see, God is patiently fighting for them, waiting for them to see the truth, to choose faith, hope, and love. Church, he is fighting for them just like he fought for you. And now he wants to use you to show them what faith, hope, and love looks like when it is lived daily. He has equipped us with the power of his spirit and the truth of his word so that we can live that life daily. We can live lives that reveal that power and that truth to a world that desperately needs to hear the good news that we have heard and that we have received. And I'm telling you, the world is ready to hear it. They're waiting to hear it. When they see the evidence of the gospel in our lives, match with the words of the gospel in our mouths they recognize and many will come to repentance they will be broken so that Christ can heal them but when they see that the evidence of our lives lived does not match the good news that we say they recognize the hypocrisy They don't see that Christ has done anything in in our lives, so why would he do anything in theirs? The world is watching. We are always preaching, not necessarily by what we say, but by the things that we do that are consistent with the words that we say. And I will tell you all, it's as simple as this. If the gospel is, I am broken, I am a sinner who has been healed and is being redeemed and transformed by the love and power of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And my life will have evidence of my brokenness and it will have evidence of my transformation. And it will be the witness that will help to win the world. We have such good news to share. It's the news that we've received that even in our doubt, even in our failure, in our confusion, in our brokenness, that we are deeply and truly loved. That we serve a God that doesn't watch us suffer. He got down in it with us. Suffered with us, for us. He's not distant. He's not separated from what we're going through every day. He knows it intimately. And he is going to do something about it. Ours is a God who will take what's wrong and he will make it right. And our hope and prayer should be that the people that we meet, the people in our lives, would be standing right by our side, welcoming our coming Savior when he comes again, not shaking their fist at him. That they would be with us as we are with him forever that should be our longing and our hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for difficult passages that teach profound truths. We're grateful for the comfort in knowing that when we are in Christ, that judgment and that wrath has been satisfied. And we will find ourselves with you in that chapter 15 setting above the bowls. but we are disturbed to hear what will happen to those who cannot receive that truth, who will not receive that truth, and we pray. We pray that their spirits would be broken so that you can heal them. We pray that you would use us, that you would equip us and show us how we would be a part of that process. God, give us the courage and the strength to remember that you are wonderful and that we can live every day as if that's actually true. And others might come to realize it as well. We love you. We thank you for the gospel and the ability to share it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at FPC underscore Kingwood. We'll see you next time.